everyone, and welcome back to Then Again, the podcast of the Northeast Georgia History Center. I am Marie Bartlett, and I am the director of the Ada May Ivester Education Center here. Today, we are going to talk all about disco with Dr. Carolyn Sutton-Clark, who has a PhD in dance history. Thank you so much for being with us today. It is my pleasure, Marie. Could you tell us a little bit about yourself so our audience can get to know you better? Yes, I am a lifelong dance enthusiast. I started when I was a tiny tot, and I've never stopped. That's basically all there is to know about my story. But along the way, I've done many, many things with dance. I grew up dancing different forms. I have been a professional dancer in different forms. I have gotten very interested in dances around the world, and that has taken me to Hawaii for my master's degree, where I studied Asian Pacific dance. I've studied a few West African forms. And um, my most recent interests have been in communities and how communities are full of groups that do different kinds of dance and how people create community together through dancing. And that was what took me to New Zealand for six months for a research fellowship. And I interviewed many different dancers from many different forms. So I like to say I never met a dance I didn't like, and it's all connected and all interesting. So today we are going to be talking about disco, which I think is very fun. And perhaps some of our listeners have even done some fun disco moves in their past or even I present. Hope so. I hope so. <laughs> I found it interesting when I was looking up some of the history of disco for this podcast, and it was actually that discotheque means library of phonograph records in French. Is that correct? That's correct. Yes, it does. <laughs> And I was like, oh, that's so interesting. So like we're playing music and we're dancing to it. Um, so mm-hmm. disco is, is a genre of dance music, and it's also a type of dance in itself. So could you tell us a little bit more about the music and then the dance that go with the music? Yes, absolutely. And yes, that word disco comes from discotheque which is a French word, as you say. And what's fascinating is that that really comes out of World War II France. So with any period of history, you know, it doesn't just have a clean beginning and a clean ending. It's all a continuum of influences. And we'll never know the full stories of all the different ways that these different influences came together. But you know, we really are bringing in technology here with music because people didn't have access to live bands, certainly in Paris during World War II. Some of that stuff was underground. And the only way that you could hear it was through this new technology of records and record players, albums. And so library of record discs, dis- discotheque, like bibliotheque. So that term continued after World War II And this is not my area of specialization, but I I have gone down many a rabbit hole um, learning more about all kinds of subjects and all kinds of dances that changed and arose because of the invention of records. There was no need to have a live band anymore. And and 
it's not that easy necessarily or affordable to pull together a band. You're, you're lucky if you have live music. So for parties, we have sort of the image in our head of, you know, teeny boppers listening to record discs, you know, or playing the jukebox at the, <laughs> the malt shop. And this is very much the roots of disco in terms of the technology. So the music itself that were, was on the discs that led into 1970s disco, especially in the United States, was from Motown and Philadelphia. So from Philadelphia, we really get a lot of the musical influence, what they call the four on the floor beat, which some people may be familiar with from swing dance. And of course, swing dance comes from the African-American diaspora. So when we're talking about these dance forms, we really are talking about African-American and Latin American roots. Absolutely. So from Philadelphia, we get the four on the floor bass beat. We get um, hi-hat percussion and we get a syncopated bass line. So those are some musical elements coming out of Philly. But when you think about Motown, in the 1960s, that sound, that's really the roots of a lot of what the disco music is. And you can hear it so easily. If you think about, you know, Diana Ross and the Supremes, Diana Ross went right from Motown into disco. And so that funk, that R&B, that soul, those are very influential in terms of the music. Disco music is that four on the floor. You're always going to hear that, what we call in dance, the duple meter. One, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. And that gives you a different kind of movement. And it's a very comfortable kind of movement. And that's why duple meters are usually used in social dance. We also call it a balance meter in dance because it's always a complete phrase on its own. So you can go right, left, right, left, right, left, right, left. And it's always balanced. Now, of course, there's some music in a triple meter. And of course, waltz is the first thing that comes to mind. But that's asymmetrical for dancers. So it's one, two, three, one, two, three. And you end up on a different foot <laughs> at the end of the phrase. Right, left, right, left, right, left, right, left, right. And so you always need two bars to complete the whole phrasing. So anyway, I'm diving now into meter and rhythm, but disco music, you're always going to hear that very comfortable, predictable four on the floor. I think I'll just let you talk for a little bit now. (laughs) I have more to say about the music, (laughs) but um, when you really think about the singers, That's what's so exciting, too. Disco is very much in the context of civil rights movement. So we have these African diaspora rhythms coming forward. They had been coming forward for a long time, since the late 19th century. But we have those coming forward. We have some Latin American influences coming forward. I'll talk about that later. 
And we also have the women's movement and women's liberation, which is so vital to disco in several ways. But one of them is really allowing the women artists, the female singers, to unleash their voices for the first time. So we have had amazing female singers in popular culture throughout the 20th century, but the style of popular culture singing was pretty controlled. Again, using Diana Ross as an example, the style of singing for 1960s Motown is very different than unleashing her voice for disco in the 70s. And when you think about Gloria Gaynor, Aretha Franklin, I mean, they could just unleash those powerful African-American voices in a way that they couldn't before. And it's very exciting to hear it. And it was really fresh and new sounding for the you know, people of the day. Okay, now I'll let you talk. <laughs> so when I think about disco, I think about, you know, that the music, the sound, this discotheque where you go and you have fun with your friends. And it's all about this, this community, like you were talking about, that is coming together and is really expressing themselves through this music and through this dance. But disco is not just limited to just like one cultural group. It's very much like a, a blending of cultures as America is, is blending itself. And also, as you were talking about with the civil rights movement, we are seeing a blending of cultures that was legally barred almost. Well, definitely legally barred in certain ways due to segregation so when we have disco, we kind of in the 70s, it's very much this, this coming together of cultures. So can you talk about these cultures and some of these subcultures um, and tell us more about how they came together to create the, the disco that we know? Thank you. Yes, that's very well said and insightful. You're absolutely right. There were different cultures coming forward and mingling together through the disco movement, through disco clubs. There is an over-idealizing of sort of the memory of that because certainly it wasn't fully integrated, it wasn't perfect, and there were, you know, different kinds of policies in different places in terms of who got to gather and how. But we have this vision that the historical records have brought to us of an immersive environment. Immersive is a word that we use today as a real trendy term. <clears throat> There's immersive theater and dance. There are immersive commercial environments, immersive game playing. But really, when you're looking at these clubs, the fully realized disco clubs, with the lights and the fog and the DJs and the people and the velvet rope, you know, and we're talking about a really immersive environment. And I like to remind people that it's really the engine, the engine in these immersive environments is dance. There are people who will only talk about the music or only talk about the economics or only talk about you know, practices that were on the fringes, but dancing was the engine. 
And I think people have underappreciated that, especially in terms of music for centuries. Without dancing, there would not have been a place for the music to develop in the way that it did. So dance often gets forgotten in that immersive environment. But if you did not have the dancers on your side, you did not succeed. And especially with the music industry changing at that time, there's a wonderful video on YouTube. It's a CBS news archive of Dan Rather investigating disco. (laughs) And he really focuses on the economics of DJs and how that's changing that record companies weren't even sending their records to radio stations anymore because it didn't matter. They were going straight to the clubs and they could sell records from the clubs. And that was a changing economics that still has ramifications today. But I went down a rabbit hole. You were asking about the clubs and, oh, and different people coming together. Yeah. So what are some of like the cultures and the subcultures that came together to really be the, the heartbeat of disco? Yes. Well, you cannot talk about disco without talking about the LGBTQ community. And at the time, they were self-identifying as gay, the gay community, gay rights. And so you may hear me say that term just from reading and watching and listening to the historical documents and doing interviews and talking to people. But there's, it's really so deeply connected with the gay community and with the emergence of gay rights as part of a context in the United States of emerging civil rights for many different groups. And this is so important, both for the roots of disco, the success of disco, and for the backlash against disco and its seeming destruction and death. I love this quote by Steve Greenberg, a journalist, who says, quote, disco began and ended with riots 10 years apart almost to the day, end quote. And that's absolutely true. In New York City, so we're getting that sound from Philadelphia, but in New York City, we have these different subcultures, and part of those are the underground clubs for the gay communities, for African-American communities, for Puerto Rican and Cuban communities, who tend to have their own spaces for parties because they're not allowed in segregated spaces. And because of that, we have the emergence of a couple of things, underground clubs and house parties. So in the 1960s, we have Andy Warhol's very famous gathering space called The Factory, where all these countercultural, artistic types would mingle and gather. And we have another one in 1970. It actually begins on Valentine's Day in 1970, and it's by a rock DJ called David Mancuso. And... He starts holding private parties, and it's called The Loft. And this is part of the discotheque era. 
why he created that safe space is because of, okay, I kind of went around this backwards, Marie, I'm sorry. Before the loft, <laughs> I was talking about underground spaces. So you have underground safe spaces for African-American communities, for Puerto Rican and Cuban communities, and especially gay communities to be able to socialize and dance and have fun together, these underground parties. And one of the well-known places was the Stonewall Inn in New York City. Stonewall is now a national park, I believe. It's nationally recognized as a cultural heritage monument. But the Stonewall Inn was basically a safe space for the gay community. And one thing they could do there was dance. And when you hear the testimony from people who went there, dancing was huge. Just being able to dance with someone of the same sex was illegal. So you had to have these places. And so you had safe spaces for dancing. You have safe spaces for cross-dressing and the drag queen culture, which was not new. It had been going on for decades and decades by that point to have a good time. Now, if it's illegal, why weren't the police raiding them? Well, this is fascinating because the mafia was protecting this club. So it's interesting how often the mafia comes into play in dance history. I'll just say, you know, certainly involved in the Harlem Renaissance with the Cotton Club and the Savoy. There were different mafia groups protecting those different clubs in different ways. It's fascinating, right? But I digress once again. Um, so the Stonewall Inn, the mafia had an agreement with the police. The police would come in, they would do a sort of, what would you call it? Not a sham raid, but uh, you know, a, a raid to keep up appearances. They would go in, look around, leave. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> and they would arrest a couple of drag queens, and but they wouldn't do a full scale you know, arrest everybody, close down the club raid. Interestingly, everyone who went to the Stonewall Inn always brought bail money with them because there was a good chance you might get arrested, but you would just bail out. So there was this arrangement for a while. However, you know, in the context of the late 60s, we have this gay rights movement that's coming up. We have some pushback against that. And some of the other clubs, because Stonewall was not by itself, there were other clubs in the same neighborhood that were starting to get raided. Tensions were starting to build. And that's what led to Stonewall. So on June 28th of 1969 is when the Stonewall riots began. And the police come in, they're aggressive. And according to the testimony I've read and the historical analysis, the LGBTQ community had gotten fed up. And so they pushed back against the police and we have three days of rioting. And the best account of this is a famous one 
where a bunch of drag queens locked arms and started doing a rockette style kick line. So the police were charging forward with their batons and the drag queens were pushing back with a kick line and singing Tararabundier <laughs> and kicking. But they changed the lyrics to something that I can't say in your podcast. <laughs> um, so it's, it's fascinating. But the reason that I'm bringing Stonewall up is, is really considered the beginning of disco where the Stonewall riots we have an LGBTQ community, but a lot of the people there were also African-American, also Latin American. So we're having that mix that you're talking about of cultures at Stonewall. These people who haven't been allowed to be in other kinds of dance clubs and haven't been allowed to do that kind of dancing. There was still a lot of racism against dances that were perceived to be African in origin, because guess what they were. <laughs> and basically that meant anything that really moved the torso. So like the shimmy that comes from, you know, West African cultural dance. That is an ancient style. Anything that kind of moved the whole spine and the torso, anything that leaned forward, anything that was really bent need. I mean, these were dances that people perceived as coming from cultures other than quote unquote white cultures. And uh, there was a lot of prejudice against the actual movements that the dancers did. So this is the beginnings of disco. That's why rock DJ David Mancuso in New York City needed to create a safe space in 1970, when these clubs weren't available. So he opened up basically a house party. And often these were what were called rent parties or key parties, where people would pay a little bit of money to get in. And that was used towards paying the rent for the person who had the apartment. So his space was called the loft. And it's really considered the first discotheque in the United States in the sense of being a club where everybody was welcome, everybody could dance. It didn't matter who you were or what you were wearing or who you chose to dance with or how. And so these spaces eventually turned into actual businesses like Studio 54. Studio 54 being the club associated with disco for many reasons, but one of them being it was in New York City. And it was very much a place inhabited by celebrities, by the mafia, by Donald Trump, by Liza Minnelli. Anyone who was anyone ended up at Studio 54 at some point for many different kinds of reasons, but it became a real center of hedonism as well as dance and music culture. And uh, the infamy of that place really, frankly, became not only nationally influential, but internationally influential as well. If I had a time machine, I would want to go back and see if I could get into Studio 54. It was not easy. It was not easy. People lined up outside. There were the velvet ropes. 
And the club owners would come out and choose you based on whatever their criteria were for that moment. And um, that added to the mystique. You know, you couldn't get in. And definitely added to a sense of disenfranchisement for a lot of the African-American youth who were getting involved with hip hop. So it, it, you know, it's everything's connected. Everything's connected, Marie. So these kids from the Bronx who could get into places like Studio 54, who were allowed in places like Studio 54, despite this ethos that everyone was welcome, you know, they had to come up with their own house parties. And in 1973, we have the first acknowledged hip hop party in the Bronx. So it's, it's all connected. <laughs> yes. History so complicated because everything is connected. <laughs> it is. And for me, at least, every single thread of it is so fascinating. It is so hard to like pick a, pick a stream. <laughs> it really is. It really is. But you are correct in saying that we do have these images of these different groups mingling, mixing. You can have, you know, white and African-American people dancing together and showing that on TV is revolutionary. So while it may not have been perfect by any means, it was in a sense, a step in the right direction. Yeah. Now I feel like we cannot talk about the history of disco without talking about the movie Saturday Night Fever, which stars John Tavolta mm-hmm. in that iconic white three-piece suit. Yes. Um, <laughs> And when Saturday Night Fever was released in 1977, it was a hit. It was so popular and it had a huge impact on the popular culture of the time. So can you tell us a little bit about that impact that this movie had on disco, music, dance, fashion? Yes, yes, you're absolutely right. Saturday Night Fever released in 1977 starring John Travolta. Denny Terrio was the choreographer. And it was incredible in terms of how it drove popularity of disco. The soundtrack by the Bee Gees was brilliant. And it was a different kind of sound than a lot of people were used to. And fascinating thing, it wasn't meant to be a blockbuster movie. My understanding is, thanks to Kenny Larson on my Facebook page, that it was really a way of building up John Travolta's career to the movie Grease. And the producers were waiting for the green light on Grease. And so they made this other movie while they were waiting, not realizing, I think, the influence that it would have. I think it's a much better movie than people give it credit for because it's by no means vapid. It's by no means a thoughtless movie. Now there's this investigation about how the dance club gives this, you know, working class young man with seemingly no interest in his own life or future surroundings, a place to feel free and the music, the lights, the attention, it's all this sense of liberation. This new sound, you know, you talk about 
the music having synthesizers, that was new. It sounded futuristic. The thickness of the sound, they were mixing all these different layers of instruments, violins, trumpets, and you couldn't really do that with a live band unless you carried this huge group that was financially unsupportable, insupportable. And so this thickness of sound, this upbeat quality, this sense of liberation on the dance floor, you could hear it in the music. You had this futuristic light, pew, 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 and fog and glitter and disco ball. It was all just exciting. And that's what the movie really brought forward was that this was a place of escape and fantasy from the 1970s, which had a lot of dreary aspects to them, let's face it, um, especially for young adults. Young adults were really depressed because of the Vietnam War, because of political scandals, because of the economy. Many reasons for the people of the day to feel depressed. <laughs> you know, we're starting to see the beginning of environmentalism and and, you know, there's so much racial and sexual tension, but we also have the sexual liberation that comes with the pill. So, so many things coming onto the, into the place. And, and so what Saturday Night Fever brings is that sort of concentrated in this one little movie. This young man, he's, you know, by no means a great protagonist in his outside life. But when he gets onto the dance floor, he owns it. And so people see this, they want to be a part of it. They flock to the clubs, you know, you dress up. And so that iconic three-piece suit is a very much symbolic of what the disco club could represent for some people. And what's so fun about this topic, too, is that now research has been done and research continues to be done. And we have access to all these wonderful resources through the Internet. And just looking into the three-piece suit, kind of preparing for today, the costume designer was Patricia von Brandenstein, and she bought this off the rack. So it's really, you know, quote unquote, authentic. She went to Brooklyn. She went to a men's store called The Leading Male and bought it off the rack. And she bought two of them because they were 100% polyester, baby. And they did not breathe. And so, you know, uh, John Travolta would wear one of them. And then when that, got, when that suit got soaked with sweat, they would change it out. And while that one dried, he would wear the other one. Originally, he was supposed to be in a black suit because that was considered really sleek and sexy. But they realized quickly that with all the colored lights and the background, that white would pop, whereas black would disappear. So it became a white suit with a silk black undershirt, of course, several buttons opened and that gold chain um, underneath. So it was a very much a look that came to symbolize a decade, I think, in many ways. Absolutely. It's, it's mm -hmm. iconic. Mm -hmm. 
absolutely iconic. And these two suits still exist. One was actually put up for auction last month, I think. And I did not, I was not able to find the information about what it sold for, but it was certainly expected to get at least $175,000. So these two exist. I mean, you know, they're made out of 100% polyester. They are indestructible. So they'll be with us for a long time. What's also important to know about that movie is that it, as it promoted disco, it simultaneously started its slow destruction. And it was because of the dancing. So disco previous to that had largely been partnered dance. And there were two ways of partnering for disco. You could either hold hands and go through different maneuverings with your partner holding hands. That came from Puerto Rico. So it came from the Latin dance forms, Cuba, Puerto Rico, Because these Puerto Rican kids, and by kids, I'm talking about, of course, teenagers and young adults, and probably older than that, frankly, dancing was part of the culture. Men dancing was part of the culture. So in these parties, weekly parties, nightly parties, uh, you know, at people's houses, that's the dancing they were doing, was largely partnered dance, holding hands, doing the swing in and swing out, and that continued onto the dance floor. We also have freestyling. Freestyling coming from the 60s, from you know getting loose and groovy and doing your own improvised whatever. That's something for another day. <laughs> but, so there are two ways of being with your partner. And you could do this, you could switch them up as many times as you wanted. But it was accessible for a lot of people to do. Saturday Night Fever is the first time we really see someone doing a solo. It didn't exist before this movie. And John Travolta, according to the sources that I find, was the one who insisted on it. He insisted on having a solo because he felt that it was right for his character. You know, that this is the top of the heap. This is the moment that he peaks. He's never... As far as we know, until the sequels come out, he's never going to be more on top than he is at that moment, which is both glorious and a little sad. And he thinks he needs to have his solo where he just owns the dance floor, his partner's in the background, kind of snapping her fingers and swaying side to side, and everyone else is cheering him on. And that, not only in my opinion, proves to be, you know, Part of what brings on the decline of disco, but also a decline of men dancing in the United States, which I think is tragic. It is. Absolutely tragic. Because suddenly to be on the dance floor, you have to be well-trained and looking hot and be number one dog on the dance floor. To be the best on the dance floor and there's no room to be anything less than the best because where are you doing you're on the side so where's this where's the place for most people not being involved so this is this is tragic to me but that's a discussion for another day yes as okay. you've been 
talking about it, I've just, you know, thought back to even some of my school dance experiences. And when you go to a school dance, of course, you're going to get dressed up. You're going to wear your best, even though you're going to your school gym, but you're going to get really dressed up for it. And, you know, there's probably not going to be a live band. They have hired some DJ that fits their budget who may or may not know what they're doing. And most of the time when you go to a dance, and I say this as a dancer who, I mean, I, you know, started dancing to the weather station music when I was like a little baby and my mom put me in dance classes and I've been dancing ever since. And I would go and I'm like, yeah, we're going to dance at the school dance. And everyone's just kind of standing around. And every once in a while, when a good song comes up, they like start swaying or like jumping. Mainly it's just jumping. There's a lot of jumping. And I just, it makes me kind of sad thinking back to like disco where I feel like that was like kind of the last time where people had like, this is a set of moves that I do to music. And I wish we would still have that because right now, It's basically, you got the Cupid shuffle that tells you what to do, the cha-cha slide, right? Everyone gets on the dance floor when those songs come on at weddings and stuff because like they know what to do. It tells them what to do. It tells them how to move. So can you tell us a little bit about like some of the moves that disco had that, you know, made people feel confident out on the dance floor? You know, they know what they're doing. They know what moves to do. Yes. First of all, you are so right. You are so right. I, when I was teaching a few years ago, all of my undergraduates would think about this and have the same insight that here we have these high school dances, especially prom, where the traditional engine again for the whole event is dancing, but the dancing does not exist for this generation in the same way. And so they are very excited. They've spent hundreds of dollars sometimes to do the, you know, all the limo and dinner and dressing up in flowers and get your picture taken. And then what? Everybody's standing on the side saying, well, this is kind of boring. And then jump up and down a bit. And it's because of our cultural and historical moment And there are reasons for these things. You're absolutely right. Now, disco movement was, again, it was easily accessible for many because of that duple meter. You know, if you can step, touch, step, touch, step right, step left, step right, step left. Basically, if you can walk, you can do something on the dance floor and Let me strike that because that was ableist. But everybody is welcome on the dance floor, no matter what kind of movement you're doing. And there's nothing more pleasurable, in my opinion, than somebody holding my hand, leading me onto the floor, and we're just holding hands and doing a little this, little that. doesn't matter to me. It's a sociable moment where I feel a sense of connection. And dancing has long been that for centuries, depending on your cultural background. But every culture has dance of some kind or other because we move, you know, even if you move differently, you can still move something. (laughs) And this, this ideal of inclusiveness 
really tried to bring that forward. Now, here's where Saturday Night Fever has an influence because it's a very heteronormative movie. And so to make money putting out, you know, videotapes on how to do disco, which still exist on YouTube, they're wonderful. It's very heteronormative. In order to make money, it becomes very heteronormative. So instead of these, you know, rent parties at the loft where everybody's welcome, you play a bunch of records and, you know, you can do it. It becomes a real economic force and it starts mainstreaming where we're seeing, you know, yeah, everybody's welcome at the club, but it's mostly white people and everybody's welcome at the club, but now it's all heterosexual couples. So you do start seeing this mainstreaming, this mainstreaming, which is in part due to economic and cultural pressures and concerns behind everything that's successful is someone who sees the opportunity to make money for good or for ill. And those things may come together. Thinking about the movement itself, it's not so structured that you have to take lessons. So there's a part of the equation. You can just do your own little groove however you can, you know, and you see those old videos and you're not seeing John Travolta, you know, you're really not. But most people, you're just seeing a little sort of wiggle <laughs> and it's all part of it. But there'd long been that kind of dancing, you know, from at least the 1890s. It, it didn't just start with the hippie movement, you know, it really started in other kinds of communities. So it wasn't like suddenly it changed, but am I providing an answer to your question? Cause I keep diving oh. <laughs> into places about the movement being more accessible. Yeah. So do you have like a favorite disco move? Like, you know, people, I, when I think about disco, I think like, do the hustle. Oh, I love the hustle. <laughs> so are there like some of those more common movements and common dance moves that you can just kind of throw out there for us? You know, like what are, what are some of the go-to moves when you, you're going to the disco tech? What are some of your signature moves that you're going to throw out on the floor? <laughs> I do have them. Well, honestly, a version of Bee's Knees. So Bee's Knees, you know, is famous from the 1920s flapper movement, which in turn came from some West African movement. And I watched an old episode of Soul Train. And the band that played Boogie Nights was performing live on Soul Train. And the backup singers... You know, often those bands would have two, three people in the back who were coordinated and they did synchronized movement together and they would do this like always the best in town, best in town. They would knock their knees together twice out in, out in. And I do that all the time now when I'm disco dancing because it's so fun. I'll just finish up a phrase and <laughs> in, in. <laughs> I don't know if you can get the gist of that over radio, but <laughs> I mean, over audio, pardon me. 
But um, I loved that one. You know, they would kind of keep their arms up in the air overhead and just wave around. I often tell people that's a hack for social dancing because people forget about their arms. And if you just wave them over your head, you've done something really interesting and cool and fun that doesn't have to have a shape or a form to it. I love turning just because I've danced all my life. It's really fun and easy for me to turn around. You can always throw a little do spin in there. <laughs> and then, yeah, the key to dancing really for the, any of the, many of these styles is just shifting your weight, shifting your weight to one foot, shifting your weight to the other. And to do that, you have to bend your knees a little and it's very fun. That's all you need to do. Everything else is just, you know, bells and whistles. So what's the pointing one where you like you point up and then you point down? Because that's the one that I always associate with disco. Oh, yes. Well, that was to the best of my knowledge. And probably someone someday will do the research. I mean, that was Denny Terrio. That was John Travolta's choreographer who put that in. Where he got it, I don't know, but it's not the first time we've seen it. We certainly saw it a lot in the swing era. Something from, you know, the African-American communities doing jazz and swing. What's that? Susie Q. When the feet are, feet are swiveling underneath really tight, and then you have this finger waggling in the air. We've seen index finger pointed up before. And... You know, right now, one of my favorite things to do is dance with Mazuri, International Folk Dance in Atlanta. We're doing a Chardash dance right now, which is has a lot of Russian folk roots. And holding one finger up like the number one is in that movement. It's traditional from, you know, probably 19th century or earlier. So having like that number one finger whether you're using it to say we're number one or whether you're saying you better go do that thing that I told you to do. It's been around. There's nothing new, right? It's all context of how you're using it this time. And for John Travolta, I never got a sense that it was number one or anything. It was more about extending the line, you know, like he's got that diagonal line in his body. And if he were just reaching out with his hand, it wouldn't be nearly so sharp as reaching out with that one finger. So however it came about, I couldn't tell you. But by crossing through the pelvis area going out and up and down on the diagonal, it sure brings attention to that area. And I mean, you see Elvis do that too. He's got a lot of diagonal lines and it all centers on the pelvis. And even as you've been talking about this, I know Elvis is kind of like a little bit more 1950s, 60s when we think about like Elvis really coming to fame and his climb to stardom. But he, so he is the king of rock and roll. He doesn't really have a whole lot to do with disco. Some of the movements that we kind of talk about when we're talking about like the movement of the whole body, I thought back to, you know, Elvis where he is, you know, really moving his legs to a point where people were concerned uh, about showing that on television. <clears throat> <laughs> Very concerned. 
but no, I, I, I kind of see, I'm like, oh, we kind of see like the roots, as you say, everything's connected. You can see kind of the, the precursor to it as it moves. Absolutely. Absolutely. And of course, Elvis was doing moves from the African-American community as well. So it's very clear through line, you know, from these early roots of the club scenes and the music all coming together. And if you look at it as a whole, you can see these influences just flowing through. If you look at it in terms of, well, what section of the music store are we going to put these records? Then it's very choppy. You know, it's like, oh, the, you know, we have the R&B section. We have the, you know, and it's all very clear cut, but it's not that way in reality. Now, in Saturday Night Fever, there is a scene, and I don't remember exactly how it goes, but John Travolta's character is very upset with his father and essentially says something to the, the effect of, Disco is going to be forever, Dad! Um, <laughs> Every teen and young adult has said that about something, right? <laughs> it's almost ironic, in a sense, because Disco essentially is declared, quote-unquote, dead, very soon after that. And as you were saying, Saturday Night Fever is kind of like the death knell of, of disco almost mm -hmm, in, mm -hmm. in certain ways. So I'm sure you've heard the phrase deader than disco. It's in just our vernacular phrases that we sometimes say on a daily basis. So the phrase deader than disco, it means that something is just like unquestionably dead. Like it's just, it's not coming back. But is disco really dead? Mm -hmm. We can't talk about disco without talking about this. It's so important. So earlier I said that disco began with a riot, which was the Stonewall riot, and ended with a riot. Now, we've already talked about how you know that's, it's not true in a sense, because the term disco was first coined in 1964. So... No, it wasn't 1969 where suddenly people were talking about disco, but and nothing has a clean beginning and a clean end. But the perception that disco died was very sudden. I would argue, no, it didn't, but it did as a commercial entity called disco. And it happened at a very specific place in a very specific time. So the beginnings of the end of disco happened with Saturday Night Fever, even though that movie propelled disco into even greater popularity, no question. But in terms of who and how people participated in disco, that started to change. We started to see, you know, become a white thing, a heteronormative thing. It's important to remember that a lot of those disco ballads became sources of strength for the LGBTQ community. Disco officially died on July 12th, 1979. And this is a fascinating story. I don't know. Have you ever heard of Disco Demolition Day, Marie? I have not, but I'm in. Oh, let me tell you about Disco Demolition Day. We're in Chicago and there is a rock DJ at a radio station named Steve Dahl. And as disco became the king of the airwaves and radio, there became less room for these 
rock DJs. And Steve Dahl lost his job at a Chicago radio station. He had an ax to grind. <laughs> he had, he was very angry at the disco movement. He didn't care for that music in the first place. He was an angry young white guy who felt disenfranchised and marginalized, ironically, by disco. And he spoke for and captivated an audience for a group of people who had started to get angry and feel left out of this whole decade. And these are young white men. Not all, not all by any means, but a segment who liked listening to metal and rock, did not want anything to do with these sort of synthesized pop disco sounds, which tended to sound the same because, you know, there's certain tempos or speeds that are optimal for dancing, so forth. And we might want to talk about turntables because that was, that was important with disco as well, was that you could just the technology came forward where you could bl blend one record into the next without stopping. But um, if we get there, we get there. Okay. <laughs> so Steve Dahl was starting this moment, this movement against disco. And so he organized something called Disco Demolition Day. And this was scheduled to take place during a baseball game in Comiskey Park on July 12th. And it was going to happen in between innings. And got the word out, everybody bring disco records and we will blow them up on the ball field. Not really realizing what he was organizing and the power and strength of it. And so what happened were tens of thousands of angry young white men arrived at Comiskey Park with disco records. And they all came on the field, got their records, and these, you know, explosives, mind-boggling, but there's plenty of video footage um, to watch on this. They cleared, you know, back away, and this huge explosion takes place and people start rioting and they're unfurling Steve Dahl's mottos, which were disco sucks and death to disco and disco sucks became this phrase that swept the nation because of the coverage that this event got in the news and on radio and anything to do with popular music was this disco sucks. And it came right after the parody hit disco duck, which had been a very popular, silly comedy song was disco duck. And so we have this disco sucks death to disco and almost overnight disco is dead from this one angry event. I mean, they had to cancel the game because the field was ruined, as you might imagine, and it was a full-on riot. So not to oversimplify, but suddenly there's no business left. There's no profit to be made in labeling something disco. Again, going back to the record store, labeling albums as disco albums 
was not going to sell your records. So it is fascinating that because of journalism, because of this ability to broadcast, and again, we only had four TV stations, you know, that were networked. Everybody got the same information in the same way. And it was this disco sucks, death of disco story. And disco was kind of played out by that point anyway. So you have this coming together of things. Another very important element was we had begun the AIDS crisis. AIDS was starting to become this very scary whisper across the nation. Nobody knew at that time what it was or why it was happening, but it seemed to be affecting the gay male community. And that was very much associated with disco. We certainly have the village people and many other male artists who were singing in high registers, whether or not they were homosexual. That was the sound of men singing in disco was those higher Bee Gees registers, you know, not the Barry White funk low registers. So we're seeing multiple kinds of backlash against the types of liberation associated with disco. Also, there was a hedonism to disco. Studio 54 was ground zero for that, right? So there was open drug use, open sex acts happening. We have Bianca Jagger's famous birthday party at Studio 54 where there's a nude man riding in on a white horse covered in glitter. These excesses were simply beyond the mainstream, beyond what was sustainable for a culture or for a nation, I should say, made of many cultures that seemed to only be going with one type of lifestyle that other people couldn't relate to anymore. I mean, who goes to a party like that, right? So (laughs) there were many factors in this, but because of that one event in Comiskey Park, that's where this death of disco myth comes about. So you don't use that word anymore. But guess what? Those influences, they stayed. And we can point to so many ways that disco lived on, just not necessarily called disco. Even before you get to the inevitable nostalgia, even when you start seeing revivals driven by these sort of fantasies and nostalgia about it and But what? History is often driven by the immediately successive generation. And that was the 1980s. In the U.S., the 1980s were incredibly conservative. And so this happens all the time when the next generation looks at the previous generation's culture and fashions and music and is like, ha ha, that was so silly. We know better now. (laughs) Our stuff is superior, right? So the 1980s drove that narrative so hard that the 1970s, as a decade, was a laughable decade. Whether you're talking culture, economics, or what have you. Now, in truth, it wasn't. There were a lot of good things that happened during the 1970s. But the 1980s, people in the 1980s 
drove those narratives stating that, oh, the 1970s, that was silly. Can you believe they wore their hair like that? Can you believe they wore bell bottoms? You know, <laughs> then we look at the 1980s now. It's like, can you believe those shoulder pads? Can you believe that hairspray? So we do have a tendency to poo-poo the decade or the previous generation. You put all these things together, you're going to get some of that deader than disco. Now, how it survived on things like sampling. Hip hop was also riding parallel with disco in the 1970s. Some differences, but they both had that turntable technology newly available where you could have two turntables synchronized. When you have a band with live music, guess what you have to do between songs? You have to stop. So the song finishes. Then there's a little, maybe a little patter where the band leader says, okay, now this is one of our hits. I think you're going to like it. What happens during that break, and I'm using that in terms of dance, there's this pause. What happens during that pause is that you might say thank you to your partner, go find a different partner. You might exchange names. There are stops. With this new technology, you didn't have to stop. You could, the DJ could literally go from one disc, they have the earphone, they're syncing up the next song. And if they are the same beat and same tempo, four on the floor, they can just go straight into the next song. They don't have to add, guess what, a slow dance. So slow dancing starts fading. I, I mean, I heard this the other day. Someone was talking, where are all the good slow dances? It's like, well, <laughs> it's hard to mix them in, right? You got to have the same beat, the same, more or less the same beat, more or less the same tempo, definitely the same meter. You can't go from a four on the floor and mix it right into a waltz. I mean, it's just half the people are going to fall down. (laughs) Or that person doesn't want to slow dance with you, you know, whatever. Or they want to get a drink or they just need a rest. That was happening with disco songs. They take the, oh, there's a really famous example of that. I'm not going to remember it right now. It'll come to you in like three hours. (laughs) Exactly. I'm driving somewhere. Oh my God. But I mean, Sampling was happening with the initial, you know, hip hop recordings, hip hop mixing, but also with disco, with sampling. But those same beats are still being used today. And a lot of disco became, you know, it it did change as everything does, but it changed into house music. It changed into techno. So it continues but we don't call it disco anymore. And you listen to, you know, a lot of house and it's that synth stuff, the beats, it's all there. They just don't call it that anymore. And and it does have differences, legit differences. But how about a song like Uptown Funk by Bruno Mars? It's got the brass. It's got the layers of voices. It's got the, I mean, honestly, to me, you know, and maybe the artists would disagree or, hunt me down but I would argue it's a legitimate successor to disco and it was a huge hit when it huge and it's only one of many examples of something more recent then 
this is affiliated culture with disco was club wear. You know, people were dressing up and not wearing their everyday clothes, you know, to go to the club. They were wearing the, you know, handkerchief, slinky dresses with the gold threads in it. The guys, while maybe not a three-piece white suit, they were certainly wearing, you know, a button-down polyester shirt with wide lapels and polyester pants. These fabrics had stretch in them for the first, I mean, we didn't get lycra until the 1960s in fashion. That's the first time we got stretchy clothes. And you gotta have stretchy clothes to pull off those moves, baby. Prior to that, we didn't have those elastic fabrics, right? And so we have stretchy clothes that accommodate movement. We dress up to go to the club in disco. And that continues into club wear. You know, I'm not going to go into the whole punk scene, but today the hip hop clubs, hip hop fashion, very different than disco fashion, but still that sense of you're going out, you want to look good, you know, you're all of that. It's just really taken off into what many I think would say is maybe one of the most prosperous industries ever, you know, outside of the traditional ones, very prosperous industry in hip hop fashion and club wear, things like that. So I, yeah, certainly things have changed a lot. I think we've already touched on the disappearance of social dancing, despite the music still being there. A lot of the dancing is not A lot of the sense of participation that, yes, I can go to a club and dance. It's become, you know, that really drifted towards the country music scene. So after disco, one of the directions becomes country music. And we start seeing that line dancing and Texas two-step and all that good honky-tonk stuff come forward in a new way that country music hadn't seen before in that particular ballpark. So these other things come forward. But what I mean to say is that it's fascinating how these historical events shape us in ways that we don't see until later. You would never think that, you know, this disco demolition night where a disgruntled DJ out of work, you know, is telling people to bring their disco records and suddenly a disco becomes this, you know, anathema that no one will touch. Whereas previously, you know, we had Dolly Parton singing disco. We had Liza Liza Minnelli singing disco. We had all kinds of people flocking to disco because it was the the hot touchstone of the time that you wanted to be a part of. And then just as quickly, it's over. And We are used to it these days, I think. Culture changes so quickly. It changes on a dime within a day sometimes. Like we think that something's trendy at 10 a.m. and by 10 p.m. it's, oh, who's who's doing that? Exactly. So um, in the general mix of all of these different influences, not to be forgotten are alcohol, and drugs. Always been a part of dance, 
and popular culture in general. And it continues, but here's the thing. The more drunk you are or what have you, the harder it is to dance. And especially if you're doing partner dance, right? So I just heard, was it two days ago that Major League Baseball has been changing some of the parameters so that the games can get a little shorter? Yes, there's a pitcher clock now. And the beer industry is fighting back because they're not selling as much beer. So who knows what will come of that, right? But alcohol and recreation and pastimes have always been connected, not to mention other substances, illegal substances, always part of it, right? So the more drunk you are, the more high you are, the harder it is to dance, but also the more you don't realize what kind of dance you're doing. So we have an image, for example, from the 1960s, late 1960s hippie movement of people tripping and they're just sort of rolling around, you know, just free flowing, let's call it. And that becomes part of the aesthetic of people not doing that too. It's just this looseness. And we talked about John Travolta doing that solo. Well, if you're dancing by yourself, that's something that you can do when you're on a substance, but coordinating it with partners or doing it in formations, say like the uh, Cotton Eye Joe or the Cupid Shuffle, you can't, you have to be somewhat conscious and sober <laughs> to do those dances. So yeah, it, it evolves into the style of dance really yes. that well, it was probably not at all intentional. It was just, mm-hmm. you know, you go to the club. Yes. You imbibe. Right. Dances of their choice. And yes. then that is reflected out on the dance floor. Absolutely true. I mean, let's face it, the quadrille. <laughs> now we're really reaching down the rabbit hole. But the quadrille, the version that was done at 2 a.m. by Drunk Young Men, that became the can-can. So there you have it. Everything's connected. I am going to... Do you have any final thoughts about disco as we close out this podcast here? I'm just checking my notes. One interesting thing about the Parisian discotheque of World War II, um, I talked about not having access to live bands, but it was more than that. Not only didn't they have access, but the Nazis in their occupation of Paris banned live bands for clubs. So there's no choice. It's not just economics and not just access. It was this ban by the Nazis, which is fascinating. So once you put all of these little artifacts and clues together, you can draw lines from the Nazis... (laughs) to a three-piece white suit from, you know, then you look at Atlanta and Atlanta had some really prominent disco clubs. And that's, that's one thing that should be said. It's not in my notes. Um, I didn't live in Atlanta at the time, but looking into it, 
a lot of the same cultural things that Studio 54 is famous for are present in Atlanta differently, very differently. But there were a couple of clubs, the Limelight I've heard of, um, being one of them, that had some of these, you know, cultures coming together and creating creating influences that are alive in Atlanta today. I think and I, certainly the region, yeah. I think I would encourage our listeners, you know, as after you've listened to this podcast, as you go throughout your life, just think about some of the things that have been mentioned here today and see if you can find the influences of disco when you're listening to the radio, when you go to dance, when, or, or not dance, you know, why are these things the way that they are? And can we connect them to somewhere in history? And maybe, maybe we can connect it through disco. I love that. I love that idea. Well, thank you so much for being with us today. Uh, it has been absolutely fascinating getting to, to talk to you and getting to hear about the history of disco. Yes, thank you so much for being here. It is my absolute pleasure. I am so enthusiastic about anything to do with dance. And that means I'm enthusiastic about most everything. <laughs> then Again is a production of the Northeast Georgia History Center in Gainesville, Georgia. Our podcast is edited by media producer Guada Rodriguez. Our digital and on-site programs are made possible by the Ada May Ivester Education Center. Please join us next week for another episode of Then Again.